Welcome. The Leadership Lesson Podcast inspires leadership growth in everyone. We have enthralling conversations with top leaders in order to provide you with life-changing lessons. My name is Caleb Nichols. I'm a speaker, a pastor, and a family man. My hope is to inspire spiritual depth and leadership growth in you. I love to sit down with leaders from a variety of fields, hear their personal stories and leadership experiences. This creates the podcast. Enjoy. Well, welcome to the Leadership Lessons podcast. Our guest today is John Newton, who's a professor at Alpha Crucis College. And get this, John is an academic expert on the book of Revelation. Very exciting. Uh, end times, Pentecostalism, all these kind of things John deals with. A little bit mouthwatering considering uh, COVID and where we're at and uh, where Christianity is at uh, in these times. So really interested to talk to John uh, today about a number of things. So welcome to the podcast, John. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. Lovely to be part of it. Great. So John and I have actually known each other for going way back, uh, more when I was a high school kid. I went to high school with uh, a couple of your sons, didn't I, John? And uh, That's right. Mm-hmm. It's really nice to have you here, mate, and uh, fascinated uh, by your area of expertise. So maybe tell us uh, first up, what is... Uh, eschatology, what's the book of Revelations about? Maybe you can give us a bit of a general insight there. Sure. Well, eschatology uh, comes from two Greek words and basically means uh, the study of the last things. And so in Christian theology, that means the study of what happens to us after we die and what happens uh, in the end of history, what, you know, that second coming of Christ and whole lot of stuff like that. Um, Obviously, it's an area that's been uh, uh, debated quite a bit over the years. There's been quite a lot of speculation at certain times of history, particularly uh, when there's been particular crises on or when particular Mm. significant dates are approaching, like 2000 was a big Mm. one, for example. Uh, And the Book of Revelation obviously has something to say about that. Uh, one of the things people don't always get is that we talk about end times or the last days. According to the New Testament, the last days started with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mm, yes. And, uh, so we've been living in the last days for nearly 2,000 years. Um, so we've got to be aware of that. And so theologians tend to differentiate between the already and the not yet. The thing mm-hmm. God has already done through Christ. So he's already defeated death. He's already mm-hmm. opened up salvation to us. He's already defeated the, the powers of darkness at the cross. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to look forward to those things in the future. They're already done. But mm-hmm. there are other things that haven't happened yet. Obviously, we still live in mortal bodies. Uh, obviously, we haven't been through the last judgment yet and so on. So the borderline between those two things isn't always very precise uh but it's something to remember so when we go look at the book of revelation we've got to remember as well that the book of revelation isn't necessarily all about the future mm. so there are four main competing ways of reading the book of revelation by people who believe in the bible uh and many of us uh, are familiar mainly with the idea that it's nearly all about the future so you know it's all about the second coming and the things around the second coming but you need to be aware that there are good strong bible believing scholars that hold the other three views so one of them is historicism and that's the view that revelation is a detailed prediction of the history of the church mainly and the world in the western world mainly because that's where it was originally sent to um, and in a kind of uh, uh, symbolic code that starts in John's time in the first century and goes right through to the very end. Not that many scholars hold that view these days, but some do. Can you give us an example of the symbolism in that reading of Revelation? All right, Revelation? well, in that particular reading of Revelation, for example, when we, when we read in Revelation 10 of a big angel coming down with a little scroll in his hand, he says to John, take this scroll and eat it, and then you'll prophesy uh, further. Uh-huh. Um, that is taken by those sort of scholars to mean that's the Reformation because, oh, okay. because that's when the Bible became available to the common person in mm-hmm. their vernacular language, whether it be German or English or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
so they they see that so that you can make a case for some of those things yeah uh, some of the others are a bit far-fetched when you when you try and read napoleon or hitler or you know, stuff like that in his revelation mm -hmm. it's a, it's mm -hmm. a bit um then the third view is what's called preterism it's probably the majority view of scholars um because it starts with the idea that we where we approach any bible book or indeed any book uh of the ancient world and that is to say okay what would the original audience have understood this to mean? yes um so in this case we look and say okay the original audience was seven churches in the roman province of asia in what is now turkey living in the latter part of the first century ad so that immediately tends to knock out some of the more fanciful interpretations of revelation mm -hmm. um and a lot of work has been done, research work has been done over the last 50, 60 years that has shown a lot of potential links between things that were going on in those days and what John says mm -hmm. uh, Revelation. However, um, not too many people are uh, extreme preterists or full preterists because there are things in Revelation, like the Last Judgment is the most obvious one, that obviously mm -hmm. haven't happened yet. So that won't cover everything, but it does help. Mm. And then finally, uh, idealism says, well, look, all of you guys are saying it, it relates to the future or the past or the whole scope of history. Maybe you're all partly right. Maybe there isn't a specific, um, uh, what's the word, historical set of events being described, but maybe it's talking about forces and, and uh and things that keep happening over and over again in, mm -hmm. in Christian history. So I tend to sort of find that fairly attractive. I don't think it's the total view. I think you probably can pick at least good elements out of all those, all those views. But I think it's important that we don't speculate too much. Uh, and it's important to remember that Revelation is a book for mm -hmm. one day and not just for us today. Yes, yes. And you've written a commentary, which you've recently released on the book That's of Revelation. Right. So we're talking yeah. to an expert here. You must have spent years and years in this book, oh, studying right. it and looking yeah. at it from every angle. <laughs> right. well, I've actually written three books about the book of Revelation. Wow, wow. The first one, the easiest to read, was called Revelation Reclaimed, came out in mm -hmm. 2009. It's a fairly polemical book. It's like, here are some bad ways of reading Revelation that are common around the place. <laughs> Don't do this. And then a few positive suggestions uh, yeah. near the end. And then secondly, the Revelation worldview, which is based on my PhD thesis. Fantastic. Uh, more about uh, a conversation between the book of Revelation and postmodernism. And mm. basically trying to say, okay, as Christians in this era we're living in, how should we think? Mm. and revelation help us with that so it's a bit more philosophical and then as you say beginning of this year um this little book the commentary right. on revelation, uh, it's, it's the first of a new series of pentecostal commentaries on the bible and uh so i'm specifically trying to approach revelation as a pentecostal but not copying what a lot of pentecostals have done in the past because i think some of it has been a bit misguided mm -hmm trying to think, okay, how should a Pentecostal who believes in the power of the Holy Spirit and, and reaching the world for Christ, how should they interpret the book of mm. So, and that, Now, I've, now I've, I find, John, and especially with mm. COVID, uh, we're, we're recording this at the end of 2021, uh, coming out of lockdowns here in Melbourne where we both live, and uh, I've found just absolutely fascinating mind-blowing how some christians and especially pentecostals have interpreted uh revelation in this time uh drawing parallels with covid and vaccinations and mm. 666 being qr codes and just these you know very uh, joining dots that obviously should never be joined uh what 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 do you think pentecostals are more uh I suppose, likely to join dots like that? Do you think there's something about the Holy Spirit-infused Christianity that uh, draws us to be more speculative or maybe misuse the book of Revelation? Or has it not been a misuse? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on all of that? 
Yeah, well, I think the problem with Pentecostals is that we've drawn a lot of our eschatology from the, what you might call the fundamentalist wing of mm. the church, particularly in America. And we haven't really thought about it strongly as Pentecostals mm. because, you know, um, Pentecostalism was kind of infected uh, over the last hundred years with what's called dispensationalism. So that's a view that is very pessimistic about the chances of the church during this age. It basically sees the church as in major trouble and finally rescued by Jesus' second coming. Um, won't go into great detail about that, but that view is in great tension with what Pentecostals have always believed about latter rain outpourings and great moves of God across the world and stuff like that. So those two things have always been kind of uh, creating a tension in, amongst Pentecostals. So that's one of the reasons why I wrote this commentary to kind of try and redress the balance a little bit. So getting back to your actual question though, I think that the reason why Pentecostals are susceptible to conspiracy theories and the like is because we have bought into this uh, kind of fundamentalist, futurist kind of way um, of reading Revelation. But I was very surprised recently. I've just taken part in a, uh, an interdenominational study on conspiracy theories and Christian. Mm, wow. Um, most of the people in the study were, um, I think, evangelical Anglicans. Um, but I was surprised to find that the problems we're having uh, in Pentecostal churches are not unique to us. Mm -hmm. That in other branches of the church, similar, if not identical, things are happening. And I think the problem is that this pandemic that we've just um, been going through is causing everybody to raise a lot of questions about what is God doing and where are we at and is Jesus about to come again and yeah, uh, what about the Antichrist and and of course you know governments have been putting huge restrictions on what we can can and can't do uh -huh. and has made people very very wary and, and uh -huh. very, um, what sort of anxious um, yes well so when we're in a situation like that it always heightens interest in eschatology and the book of revelation yes. now that's not a bad thing i think it's a good thing mm -hmm. people are asking the big questions what is going to happen to me when i die because now with this COVID, i might die mm. you know? um so what's going to happen to me? What is happening in the world today? Am I, are we about to lose our freedoms, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so I think it's good that people are asking those questions, but I think we've got to look at the Book of Revelation intelligently, and we've got to look at it and use the same kinds of hermeneutical rules we would use for, let's say, First Corinthians. Mm. As See, Revelation is not some kind of weird thing that, no, no, no. Understand. Um, yes, it's a different genre to say Corinthians, okay? And it has got a lot of symbolism and imagery and all the rest of it. No doubt about that. But it's not written in Martian. Mm. It's understandable, providing that we don't always try and translate everything into what we might call propositional type language. Mm -hmm. In other words, we've got to remember that Revelation appeals to our imagination more than to our brain to our right brain so to speak yes yes so uh provided we do that and we remember that it was written to an audience two thousand years ago and therefore we've got to ask first of all what would they have thought of it providing we follow those basic rules i think it's a good thing that and, and is that is that where you think things get wrong john or get out of hand when the genre is misunderstood and the uh, usual sure. exegetical tools are not understood. Because yeah. I think for me as a pastor, I've definitely thought, tried to think through the last few months, um, why are people that I'm talking to, Christians I'm talking to, other pastors even I'm talking to, there's been no real comment around eschatology, you know, recently. Mm. And then all of a sudden COVID mm. comes, a crisis, and there's yeah. just, you know, what I would consider absurd statements by some mm. even pastors around mm. um you know talking about the, the greek word pharmakia that's used in uh revelations 18 as aligning that with the vaccine and just you know 
pastors even saying, you know, uh, I'm sure you're aware of the the down the pitfalls of social media. So pastors putting things on social media about uh, this being the end times and signs of the end times. And so, would you say it's the the misunderstanding of the genre, or just the the the, the getting caught uh, overly caught in our imaginations? Uh, is that where we go wrong with the Book of Revelations, or? Well, I think the first thing is as you said yourself, we've been kind of caught by surprise. So uh, you may or may not remember, 20, 30 years ago, all the Pentecostal churches were constantly talking about end times. Mm. And we had people like Barry Smith and others that were coming through and drawing large crowds to Pentecostal churches. The problem was that Barry, like a lot of people, took Revelation to be a prediction of the future. Mm-hmm. Now, there is some of that in it, but that's not the main thing Revelation is about, predicting the future in our days anyway. Yes. Um, so when you start using it that way, you always are going to run into trouble, and that's what my first book was basically trying to expose, mm. bad ways that people read Revelation. Then, of course, what Barry and others said was, was going to happen didn't happen. So yeah. people realise, oh, we don't understand this book after all. So they stopped preaching about it. They stopped preaching mm. at any time. You know, for the last 20 years, you probably hardly ever heard a sermon on no. it. No. Then all of a sudden, this hits. And, of course, what have they got to draw on? Well, they go back and draw on some of the things they learned 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> well, hang on, it didn't work then. It's not going to work now. I've yes. got to think this through properly. I've got to go back and, and not use Revelation in that kind of way. So getting back to what you said about genre, uh, does Revelation predict the future? Well, to some degree, yes. But if you look at the first verse, the first couple of verses, it's obviously talking mainly about the near future. In other Mm. words, what was going to happen in John's own day. Mm. Now, that doesn't exhaust it. As I said, there's stuff near the end that clearly hasn't happened yet. Um, But generally... Um, that's where we have to start. But, but also, Revelation is a letter. Mm. Uh, it says in about verse 7, I think, John to the seven churches, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and mercy. It could have just been like Paul writing mm. a letter. So again, that emphasizes it's a letter to them, not to us. Yes. We can learn from it, just like we can learn from the letter to the Corinthians or the Ephesians or wherever, but we've got to remember, first of all, what does it mean to them? Thirdly, um, it's what's called an apocalypse. So um, the very first verse is, it calls it a revelation. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean something, because we use the word apocalyptic these days in a very colloquial sense, you know, to mean mm. big stuff, you know, going wrong everywhere. Mm. That's not what it meant in John's day. What it meant was it's a kind of, revelation or an unveiling of what god is up to yeah and what god wants us to say and revelation can still help us think what god is doing um in the world again providing that we interpret it um well i also see that revelation is like a story it has mm-hmm. characters it has a plot it has an ending mm-hmm. um, and so reading it that way helps again to not jump to conclusions about a particular part of revelation and if people say where are we up to in revelation we up to the sixth <laughs> or fifth trumpet or the third <laughs> or whatever i'm going those are probably not very helpful questions and they eventually no. lead to uh speculation yes yes i think the um you know going back to that you were saying we haven't heard anything much for the last 20 or 30 years it's it's funny john because i've found myself saying to people recently i feel like i'm back in my childhood mm-hmm. i feel like i'm in the charismatic kind of 80s growing up in the church hearing all these absurd things not that i thought they're absurd at the time i was just a kid but obviously as you grow up and you study the word of god for yourself you start to realize oh this isn't really saying what they told me it says you know and so you've really got to rethink so it has been an amazing just kind of grab back at the 80s and 90s with some really old understandings of these things and uh i've actually been studying a little bit of um theology myself lately um some postgraduate stuff and uh 
I've just done a course on systematic theology and we, we had a week on the end times on eschatology or the last things or whatever you want to call it. And the lecturer said a great line, which I thought was very helpful about revelations and apocalyptic genre. Uh, and just really saying that it's, it's, it's in a sense, it's, it's God, the God of the future or who God is. I mean, God is eternal breaking into the now in a way. Uh, so it's a, a foretaste of what is to come. So, for instance, the imagery in Revelation of Christ coming on a white horse with the sword coming from his mouth, it's probably unlikely that that will be a literal thing that will occur in the future. But the imagery of a yeah. victorious Christ uh, coming back as yeah. king of the universe, you know, we know that uh, as Christians, but it's a foretaste of that happening again at the end of time and the second coming. I think that really helps probably give me something to, as a bit of an anchor um, yeah. You know, and a lot of apocalyptic writing or prophetic writing, I suppose, in that sense is like that, isn't it? We know the truth, but this is a picture of the truth in the future yeah. that we understand in the now and where it's a foretaste of what we're heading into and that we're growing into or the bride of Christ is being perfected into. Yeah. Um, would I be on the right track there? Yeah, I think so. Um, one of the things that I feel God showed me years ago i was actually listening to a sermon at the time which had nothing to do with revelation but you know how sermons sometimes you just spark something off in your mind and you're lost yeah. and um <laughs> one of the things i realized is that book revelation ends with a wedding hmm. you know you've got the, the bride of christ and the returning lamb and there's this wedding in revelation 19 and in 21 so what kind of literature ends with a wedding well obviously romance and so I thought, that's a funny way of looking at Revelation. Does it work? And I went through it and I found it, it did work surprisingly as a way of looking. Again, it's a storyline, like I said before. But a romance story means obviously you've got a bride and a bridegroom. Well, we know who that is. Um, and then it, it, it opened up for me to see the purpose of the book of Revelation is not to give us information about the future right it's not to kind of help us you know work out where we are in history it's rather to challenge us and stir us to a really uh, strong discipling love for jesus hmm. right? so it's a very similar purpose to the rest of the new testament yes by surprise <laughs> it's in the <laughs> so that as you rightly said revelation isn't bringing us some grand new doctrine that isn't in the rest of the Bible. It's basically re, restating what the Bible itself says. And it's like a story. It's also like the end of a bigger story. Mm. I think Revelation was deliberately written to be the last book in the Bible. Mm -hmm. It have been the last book written. We don't know. But it's the way it finishes suggests that I'm finishing the story of what started in Genesis. Um, so and again, if you think about that in the romance line, God has all the way been looking for a bride. Mm. Okay. It was meant to be all humanity. Then it was meant to be Israel. Now it's meant to be uh, the church, not that God's abandoned those other things. Don't mm. get me wrong. But um, so because of that, Jesus wants a bride that's passionate about him. Mm. That's why in the Gospels, Jesus makes very strong demands on his disciples, doesn't he? You know, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and, and follow me. All that sort mm. of language. Or Revelation has very similar language. And the heroes of the book of Revelation are not people who are safely kind of raptured out of the world before mm. all the bad things happen. The heroes of the book of Revelation are people who give their lives. Yes. Faith. You Shed might their blood. Revelation 12, 11, they these Christians overcame him, the devil, by the mm. blood of the lamb and mm. by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so, much, so long as to die. Amazing. So that, to me, just that one verse sums up a lot of what Revelation is about and not Very good. a lot of the false teachings that we get. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that as a key verse that captures maybe the meaning of the book. I think that's it's just such, even hearing you say it again, it's just such a powerful verse, mm -hmm. isn't it? I mean, that's the core 
of yeah. Christianity. That's the core it of is. the gospel right there in exactly. the book of Revelation. And yeah. I think it's to our own detriment as Christians that we run off with these uh, unhelpful interpretations uh, of mm-hmm. these things. And I think it's sad to see Christians or Pentecostals try and bend these things into the modern yeah. day and try and make yeah. them. I, I think the frustrating thing for me is when people also try and make these things, this kind of special prophetic insight that maybe yeah. only some people have had, or only some people get that yeah. the vaccine is a certain thing or get that yeah. this government overseas is, I, I think it's really unhelpful. It's not the gospel. It's not really the word of God. God isn't, no one has a monopoly on his word or a prophetic insight that is superior to everyone else. And, uh, but can we get a little bit down into the grassroots of the book of revelations? I know some people will be listening going, what about the mark of the beast and some of these Mm. things? Like, could you give us, um, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, but could you give us a little (laughs) bit, some thoughts around the mark of the beast and the the antichrist and those scriptures, those difficult ones. Okay. Let's have a go at it. Um, well, first of all, if you're going to have a mark of the beast, you've got to have a beast. Mm-hmm. That's the first question. I say, well, who is the beast? If 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 we if you think that the vaccine is taking the mark of the beast, for example, what mm. beast? Okay, so we've got to remember the the beast in Revelation. Okay, obviously is a force or power that is trying to get everybody to worship it and indeed worship the devil, and is putting incredible pressure on all the Christians. Uh, to do that and not only all the Christians but everybody in the world and that pressure is not just oh you can't buy and sell if you don't have mm-hmm. the mark of the beast no you're actually going to get killed mm-hmm. if you don't have the mark of the beast so whatever it means let's not trivialize it by put, putting it onto something like this vaccine thing which is very very small beer mm-hmm. by, by comparison the second thing I'd like to say is when we read the, the passage about the mark of the beast, and it's it, you know it's a very serious warning, um, a lot of the time we don't read it in context. In particular, the chapter divisions in the Bible sometimes get in our way. You've got to remember yes. there were no chapters and verses in the original text. Yes. So the very next verse after the mark of the beast is chapter fourteen, verse one, mm. where you have one hundred and forty-four thousand people. And they have the name of God and Christ written on their foreheads. Mm. Now, I don't ever remember anybody making a conspiracy theory about that. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, and that's mentioned more times in Revelation than the mark of the beast. So if we're going to say the mark of the beast is, you know, a vaccine or it's some kind of, um, you know, stuff um, under your skin and you know, all these different theories come up. Well, hang on. Is the mark of God like that? So if you're going to take one li- literally, quote unquote, yeah. um, are you going to take the other literally? Otherwise, you're being very uh, inconsistent. Yeah. And the big point about that, though, is if you've got the mark of God, you won't fall for the mark of the beast. In other words, mm. if, you, if your life is 100% committed to Jesus Christ, and your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, as Revelation 13 talks about, you are not going to take the mark of the beast. Mm. So you don't think you're going to, you might accidentally take it one day. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It's always connected to loyalty to God versus loyalty to some other force. So, for example, in the... um, about 20 or 30 years after Revelation was written, in a very nearby province of the Roman Empire, I'll just tell you this little story. The governor of the province was a guy called Pliny the Younger, and he was having a big problem because the Christians were growing very fast in his particular part of the empire, and it was getting so bad that no one was going to the temples, no one was offering the sacrifices, and no one was buying the meat that came from the temple because the Christians mm-hmm. wouldn't touch it. So he felt, oh, I've got to come, come down on these people, you know? And, uh, and so, of course, so he started making strict rules, you know, about Christians and about the rest of it and about people meeting secretly and a whole lot of stuff. 
But of course, what happens then, as we see today in Pakistan, you make a rule like that, people will use the rule to, for, to fight their own private fights. So in Pakistan, a lot of Christians end up in trouble because they're accused of blaspheming the Quran because there's a rule about that. Well, I don't like you. I'm going to accuse you because I know you're a Christian. You know, it's got nothing to do with religion, really. It's just a private feud. Well, the same thing was happening there. People were dobbing their neighbours in for being Christians when they weren't. Mm. So he came up with a test. He said, these are three things that a Christian won't do. So if a person is accused of being a Christian and they deny it, I'm going to test them on these three things. First of all, will they deny Christ? No Christian will do that. Secondly, will they offer sacrifice to the gods? A Christian won't do that. Thirdly, will they offer incense before a statue of Caesar? A Christian won't do that. So I think that that, and that worked quite well, actually. It sorted the sheep out from the goats. Yeah. And it pulled a few nominal Christians back from their faith. And, and many of the ones who then said, no, I am a Christian. I'm proud of it. They got killed. Wow. It's very similar to Revelation 13, doesn't it? Mm. So there was no physical mark, but there was a test of loyalty. And mm. that's what the mark of the beast ultimately is. It's a test of loyalty. And that's why the mark of God in the next verse, okay, that's the opposite loyalty. Are we loyal to God and Christ or are we loyal to the state or someone else, first of all? Fantastic. That's serious. It's life and death. Well explained. Yeah, it's great. I really like that. So what about the beast or the antichrist how does that right. fit into okay. that well first of all just a very small point the word antichrist is never used in the book of revelation mm -hmm. it's only used in first and second john mm. and in those in those places it's describing people who were christians probably preachers who abandoned the faith in some, or compromised the faith in some way so it's a religious uh, term not a political term as such now the beast in revelation is something different again i think it is a political term primarily um, although it has a religious side because you've got to remember in those days religion and politics were not separated like we have yes today. you know the roman empire was built on the foundations of the gods who believed who they believed favored them and gave them this massive empire mm. So whatever the mark, whatever the beast was in those days, and I think it was the Roman Empire or one of the Roman emperors, perhaps specifically Nero, he's uh -huh. a good candidate. He fits, he was the very first emperor to persecute Christians and 666 uh, can be the number of his name. It's uh -huh. a little bit convoluted, so we wouldn't want to, um, what's the word, be too dogmatic about that, but it fits really well. And that's why I think there have been many beasts in mm. history. You know, I think if you lived in Germany in the 1930s, Hitler was acting very beastly <laughs> in, in France and Europe in the end of the 18th century. Napoleon might be a good candidate. Mm. Um, but I think we've got to be very, very careful here. Again, people are trying to make political points. Like I remember when um, Barack Obama was the president of America, a lot of people, oh, he might be the beast. Funnily <laughs> enough, I never heard anyone say that about Donald Trump. And yet, by the very criteria most of them used, he actually fitted better than anybody <laughs> else because he was the one that was producing peace things with Israel. Mm. I think that's all the rubbish, but you know what mm. I mean? But if they were yeah, yeah. consistent, they should have had a go at him. Um, so I think we are looking at um, political power that demands worship and excessive loyalty. Yes. You know, probably the nearest one today would probably be Xi Jinping in mm. China, who's basically forcing churches to take crosses down and put up his picture instead mm. and things like that. That, I don't think he's quite there yet, but he is moving in that kind of direction. Mm. Again, we're talking about serious issues. Mm. We're talking about what might be, you might get killed. And therefore, I think that Christians living in China or North Korea, even worse, and places like that, can probably understand this a lot better than those of us living in the fairly comfortable Western 
Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big, I think, yeah, we, we have to make a big stretch in our very comfortable world to try and yeah. make something a beast or call something a tyrant where you, so, you're right, they, they understand yeah. these things a lot better. I think that Revelation does warn us about excessive political power. So mm -hmm. I think we have every right to be anxious about the way the governments in Australia are using the powers given to them through the pandemic. I think we've got to be every right to be anxious about this new law that's just been passed in Victoria. But let's not overstate it. Let's keep a sense of proportion here. This mm -hmm. is not the beast. This, you know, you are not going to be killed if if you don't do what um, Daniel Andrews tells you to do. For example, yeah, yeah. let's keep a sense of proportion. That's what I'd like to say. I think. Yeah. I think for me, that that where where proportion is lost, it seems to be far more of a psychological issue than a spiritual issue. So where people are overreaching with their interpretations of Bible revelations, COVID, Daniel Andrews, I think. It seems to me, to all the conspiracy theories you mentioned earlier, it seems to be more of a psychological way of coping probably with the crisis. And there's obviously a lot of scientific evidence around conspiracy theories and dealing with crisis. And it's more of a psychological um, sure. ploy to give some certainty or anchoring maybe in a time of crisis. I think that yeah. the challenge as a Christian is, you know, we really believe in the Bible. Uh, mm -hmm. We believe in the supernatural realm and maybe there's a bit of a, intermeshing of these things sure. and, uh, with some psychological trying to trying to survive as we've all been trying to through the yeah. last couple of years and you get this kind of odd mix and you've said it a couple of times today john uh about thinking through things properly and mm -hmm. as as any good academic would you know you never i've said to many of my friends in a little bit of study i've done like when you're writing academic academic essays and things like that very much the tone is is not an absolute tone. It's very mm. much a, this scholar suggested this and this has been sure. postulated and nothing's ever held so firm because we're trying to learn, we're being open, we're sure. building on each other's research and where, you know, you don't get that sometimes as much when things are more of an emotional sure. response. It's very absolute. Daniel Andrews is and, you know, the pandemic is and the Book of Revelation says and it's all very mm. concrete. Um, which isn't very helpful, especially for, for in my role as a pastor when it comes to discipleship and with openness and growth. You know, growth doesn't come very well through absolute claims. It comes through humility and openness and learning and prayer and dialogue and, and, and these kind of things. So, having, having said that, I mean, there are absolutes, though, that we do hold to. Hmm. Um, so I have a little phrase that I picked up somewhere over the years that I often use when I'm teaching this sort of area, and that is the plain things are the main things and the mm. main things are the plain things. Now, I would die for the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. I would die for the second coming. I would die for some of these other major truths about Jesus being God, you know. Mm. Um, these are clear things that are stated in the Bible that every Christian knows these things are true and therefore they are absolutes that we can hold on to. The mm. problem is other Christians get absolutist about things that they have no right to be absolute, like yes. you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial, pre-tribulation, all this sort of stuff. Well, have a view by all means, work out what you think it's saying, but don't say, oh, anyone who doesn't agree with me isn't a proper Christian or something like mm, that. Mm, mm. So that's where I, I draw the line. So we've got to be careful. In, and obviously in our postmodern era, um, the whole idea of absolute truth is going is being thrown out. Mm. I think that's dangerous uh, for Christians. I think we've got to be careful that we don't compromise on the things we sh that are plain in Scripture. On yep. the other hand, that we don't absolutely those things that are not so plain. Yes. Yeah, very good. Now, now getting back to Revelations, what, what about mm. Revelation 17, 18, the great prostitute, the ten horns? Can you give us a little bit of a insight there? What 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 what, yeah. what this is probably talking about? Well, once again, it's probably largely about Rome. Um, mm. because it says at the end of chapter 17 that she is the, the city that's ruling over the kings of the world. Well, that's obviously a reference to Rome. 
Uh -huh. When it talks about the seven mountains that she's uh, sitting on and so on. So it's probably almost certainly there are some people, some scholars who think it's about Jerusalem and uh -huh. Jerusalem because Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome in AD 70. It's possible, but I don't think it's the main thing that's been got at there. Um, also, though, but like everything in Revelation, it probably has multiple potential applications. Uh -huh. Now, we know that um, in the post-Reformation era, a lot of people took this to be the Roman Catholic Church. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, if you were living in some parts of Europe in those days, under the Inquisition, for example, you might have had good reason for thinking that. Uh, I think it was a stretch then, and it's a much bigger stretch uh, now to take that view, although there are still people who do. Hmm. Um, so it's, again, it's... What are you comparing it with? Okay, let me just take this back a step. Mm -hmm. When we read the book of Revelation, one of the clear things that we see about it, I, I, mentioned, I mentioned about a romance story, but the other, another one is a war story. Revelation mm. is full of wars and fighting and violence. Mm. Um, and ultimately, that violence is a spiritual battle between God and the devil. To oversimplify a bit. Um, and Revelation shows us a number of ways the devil tries to get his way in the world. So one of them is by persecution and oppression. Okay, if you don't worship me, you're dead, that sort of thing. So Revelation 13 um, is all about that. The second way is through deception. In Revelation 12, he's called the, the one who deceives the whole world. The, again, we also said in Revelation 13, when the second beast brings um, big signs like fire from heaven and stuff like that, deceiving the people into thinking that the beast is actually divine. But the third way the devil has, and this is, and these all go back to the very beginning of Genesis too, uh, is what I call seduction. In other words, I'm I'm going to I'll if you cooperate with me, I'll make life easy for you. Okay, now if we look at what's going on in Australia right now, we see a, a little bit of oppression, maybe. Okay, we see a fair bit of deception going on, but probably the main thing we see is seduction. The yeah. devil seduces us through our capitalistic consumption culture, mm. makes us soft as Christians, and therefore we're not passionate about following Jesus. Mm. We are a bit like the church in Laodicea, mm. which was comfortable and wealthy, and therefore they lost their dependence on the Lord, and Jesus mm. was actually shut out from the church. Now, I'm not saying that there's some kind of, you know, staged system going on here. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But I do think that that problem that the church of Laodicea had is probably more the problem that the Western church has yes. today. And I think that this prostitute in Revelation 17 and 18 is that particular strategy of the enemy, mm. like using luxury and goods and trading and mm. consumption to seduce us and bring us into the world system. Yeah, it's a, it's a very graphic picture of great prostitute giant mm. harlot uh in some translations drawing yeah. in the kings of yeah. the earth and That's seducing right. them and consuming them almost and uh yeah. it, it's uh, yeah I, I like what you're saying there john that understanding of uh the seduction and, and you're right in our modern postmodern world it, it is a really big problem for us as christians and 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 in the church so what why why it's talking about postmodernism what was the main reason that you wrote the book drawing together postmodernism in this culture we live in with the book of Revelation? What really inspired you to write that book? And we'll link all of your books in the description for anyone who wants to look them yeah, up or purchase them. Well, it started life as my PhD thesis. And mm -hmm. um, the original decision was somewhat pragmatic. Um, I wanted to study uh, under a particular guy at Deakin University. And... Um, because Deacon didn't have a theology school, I had I couldn't do pure theology. Oh, I really wanted to do something on the book of Revelation. 
So I came up with this idea of how about I try and link revelation with postmodernism. Now, there's two good reasons for doing that. First of all, Revelation is, is one of the most unpostmodern books in the Bible. So it's full <laughs> of absolutes and threatening things and heaven and hell and you know, mm. God and the devil, all that sort of stuff that postmodernism really hates. Uh, but then secondly, uh, Revelation has been, of all books in the Bible, the one that's been subject to the most um, different interpretations and contradictory interpretations, which, of course, is something postmodernism really uh, likes to highlight about any piece of literature. There's mm. no one meaning to anything. No, mm. it could be, depends on who's reading it, what mm. that means. So it actually helped me to actually, and I didn't know a lot about postmodernism when I started on this journey, um, but the more I read about postmodernism and I read about Revelation, I realised that, okay, I could um, get these two things kind of talking to each other. It's a bit artificial, but, um, and addressing some of the big questions, it's called the Revelation worldview, because that was the word that best summed up what Revelation and postmodernism we're talking about. So in other words, what is real? Mm. How do we know anything? What is a human person? Where is history going? How do we deal with people who disagree with us? These mm. are some of the big questions that any worldview has to answer. Revelation provides us with a series of answers on that. And in mm. fact, the whole Bible does, but I, I couldn't take the whole Bible. Mm. And um, postmodernism gives us a completely not always completely different, sometimes somewhat similar um, idea um, to the Bible. So it enabled me to have this discussion and to, it ended up almost an apologetic kind of book, okay? Christianity has something useful to say in this postmodern era, and this book of Revelation can help us say it. Yeah, fantastic. Really interesting. When In this postmodern era, where do you think the church is at? in Australia, or maybe Pentecostalism is particularly your um, field of interest. Where, where, where well, do you think we're at? Well, I think post-Pentecostalism has tapped into the postmodern era better than any other form of Christianity, and that's why mm. it's growing so rapidly, because we have a lot of stress on, on emotion, experience, mm. and not so much stress on truth, mm. which is a danger, but yes. also an advantage, okay? So if you're a postmodern person and you're getting a little bit interested in Christianity, you're probably more likely to go to Hillsong than to, say, your local Presbyterian church, just for Agnes. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, the danger with that is, Pentecost, is that we get swallowed up by postmodernism and that we neglect truth. And I think that that is a danger in many Pentecostal churches that we have fallen into to some degree. Uh, I think we do need to get back and think, okay, what do we actually believe to be true? Um, and I think a lot of Pentecostal pastors are now seeing that and realising mm. that it's not good enough just to give people good feelings and experiences. They mm. need to have some solid, solid truth. Now, of course, a lot of the other parts of the church, and again, I'm overgeneralising, so if you're watching this and you go to a different church, please <laughs> don't be offended at what I'm about to say. But I think some parts of the church are still living in what we call the modern era. That is where reason and science define everything. Now, that is still around that idea in, a, in Western society, but it's gradually being superseded by the idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth and that um, we don't learn primarily or only through reason. And that even reason is varies from place to place and from century to century. And a lot of the modern views, say in the 18th and 19th century Enlightenment, for example, uh, were dominated mainly by what, what we call white Western men. Mm. So postmodernism is saying, well, hang on a minute. Well, in that case, there must be other ways of looking at truth which are equally valid. Mm. That can be a great opportunity for the Christian gospel to come in. For us mm. to say, well, here is one of those. What do you think of this? And rather than try and prove it to them, we'd say, okay, here's the Christian story. Doesn't it make sense? 
doesn't it help? Mm. Then they they have to decide. Uh, I think in my experience, I, I love that. I think it's great, John. And I think mm. in my experience, part of the problem as well for your modern Australian is they get they they really trip over the church. Yes. So trying oh, yes. to trying to bring yes and and trying to and I try and help my congregation with this bringing Jesus, bringing the core tenets of the gospel, Son of God, and He rose from the dead. Just that simple faith that that the, we do a lot of worldview stuff around god's big story and the story mm -hmm. of jesus whatever but yeah. but getting getting to that being able to even share that story is very difficult the minute yes. the word church is used oh, um, yes. i was just i was just met with the family this morning for a funeral i'm going to do next week and um it's a very it's through my local soccer club and uh it's a very typical kind of story where the 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 the, the, the older man has passed away uh, probably grew up going to Sunday school, probably grew up technically as a Christian, cultural Christian, we might say. Yeah. But they really just rejected everything more because the church and the institution yeah. and the whole thing just, yeah. you know, so they've kind of thrown out the baby with the bathwater. The, the, the yeah. core beliefs aren't really even assessed or thought about or considered because there's just the whole religious thing is just yeah. don't yeah. really need it. So, uh, maybe some of where I see the challenge a little bit at the moment for the church in modern Australia. Oh, look, I, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you. And, you know, I mean, it says somewhere that judgment must begin at the house of God. Mm. And um, I think that God is cleaning us up. I mean, mm. let's face it. The church has had a lot of bad publicity and obviously mm. the trust abuse stuff, particularly in the Catholic church, but not exclusively has been a major issue but the other major issue, people don't like to belong and people don't like to be told what to think or what to do by mm. any institution. So people are, and that's not only affecting the church, it's affecting lots of other groups. Lots of yes. people these days are not joining. I read a really interesting article from New Zealand a few years back that the number of people taking part in rugby clubs in New Zealand, now, you know, rugby is virtually a New Zealand's national religion, Mm. number of people taking part is dropping substantially so people will go and watch a game but that's not a commitment mm. they won't join a club because then i've got to follow some rules and i've got to you know go to a meeting every week or whatever <laughs> people don't like making commitments mm. that's part of the whole postmodern ethos we yes. just ain't cool and uncommitted we we keep a distance yeah who tries to put anything on us so i think that's another problem mm. that the church um, um is facing and of course the technology that we have even in the church now means that if someone wants to they don't have to go to church they can just sit and watch brian houston or whoever yeah on tv and they don't have to give any money they don't have to believe any particular doctrine they don't have to sign anything it's mm. very, very uh, uh, laid back. Now, that's a, a real problem for us because we don't want people just to join the church mm. as an institution. On the other hand, we can't give them an easy believism. You know, Jesus demands loyalty. He demands you give him your 100% commitment. And that's, again, what Book of Revelation makes very very plain, but not only mm. the whole New Testament um, yes. is has screaming that message at you all the time. So we've somehow got to balance the fact that yes, the church is kind of relative in a sense, that the church is um, imperfect, that the church has got some scandals in its mm. history, some skeletons in the closet. Mm. You will know what they are, so they're not exactly in the closet. <laughs> um, of course, People don't realize, though, how much we owe to the church. Yes. They don't realize that modern science was born in a Christian worldview culture. Mm. They don't realize that nearly all of our health, education, um, justice laws have yeah. come out of Christians agitating and churches uh, modeling this kind of thing. Mm. Um, not popular right now to hear it's that. Not popular, no, but it's those very hard truths aren't popular right now. Yeah. So you can't 
you can't tell them that unless they're already sort of halfway there. Mm. Um, but so I think all we've got it, we've just got to live it out. Yes. Show people by our love. Yeah. Not our love for them, but also our love for each other. The more yes. Christians fight each other, the more that's a turn off to mm. the rest of the world. Um, it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge. challenge. But I also think it's very exciting, Does It is. It is. I'm I excited. We have <laughs> incredible possibilities, particularly as Pentecostals, to demonstrate what Christianity um, is all about. Yeah. Well, so in my generation, John, late 30s, early 40s, grown up in uh, Pentecostal churches kind of childhood yep. during the more charismatic kind of era of the 80s, the prophetic yep. type 90s, you know, this kind of thing. I've found a lot of my peers, pastors my age, friends my age, that, that there's, there's a level of disillusionment with mm. the Pentecostalism, with yep. the style, with the approach. Yep. Um, I, think, I think it is amazing as you mentioned before, that Pentecostalism is the fastest growing global, you know, globalist fastest growing arm of the church. And, and, and I think for good reason, for sure. I, th I totally agree with you. The weakness, as you mentioned before, is maybe uh, emotion trumping truth at times, or maybe uh, there's, there's not a lot of uh, desire to go into the difficult issues and church discipline or preach about divorce being sin or these kind of things are not very popular issues in our in modern culture and maybe Pentecostalism brushes over some of those things but I think the disillusionment that I'm hearing from a lot of my generation that I talk to is more around the prophetic stuff the apostolic stuff the like you know being parented by our parents that was very much you know demon hunting and the Simpsons is evil and there's no Halloween and a lot of these, everything was spiritualized. And uh, I, I, I don't know, is that, am I just caught, are we just caught in some postmodern thing? Um, is there some truth to that, that Pentecostalism maybe have, has, is maturing or have you seen it maturing in a way? Uh, I do have to remind some people that Pentecostalism is actually fairly young in Australia, really. It's really a post-World War II phenomenon in a lot of ways, isn't it? Um, so maybe it's maturing a bit. I, I, I don't know. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts yeah. on that. Yeah, well, I think, I think you're right. I think Pentecostal is maturing. Um, the first Pentecostal church in Australia, by the way, was started in 1909 mm. in North Melbourne. The wow. building is still there. Um, they didn't build it. They just rented it or something. But it's now a Catholic uh, building called wow. the Legion of Mary. So you can go and find it sometime if you're interested. Um, obviously, after that, there was a series of revivals in the 20s and 30s that really got Pentecostalism going in Australia, but um, it didn't take off much until the late 70s. Mm. I'm doing a lot of study myself at the moment on that period from 1970 to now. But um, Pentecostalism, it came out of a fairly um, lively um, holiness kind of stream of Christianity in Australia. Most of them had been Methodists, um, and Methodism, of course, doesn't exist hardly any longer. But um, you know, it's part of what became eventually the Uniting Church. Uh, and these were people who really were looking for a more serious form of Christianity that had real power uh, to it. Um, but of course, the problem with the with that and the focus on the experience, which was is always been central in Pentecostalism, you know, spirit spirit baptism specifically, but also speaking in tongues, healing, prophecy, and other experiences. The problem with that always has been discerning what's good and what's not so good, mm. uh, and balancing that up uh, against against the Bible. Uh, I remember a famous uh, statement was made by a particular scholar years ago who had been a Pentecostal. He said, I want to give thanks to the Pentecostals who taught me how to love the Bible and to the Presbyterians who taught me how to understand it. <laughs> like all such clever sayings, it's radically oversimplifies things. <laughs> but I do think that Pentecostals have not been very good at analysing and interpreting the Bible 
mm-hmm. up until fairly recently. But it is changing. Um, a lot of Pentecostal ministers are now getting degrees, uh, whereas before that was uncommon. Um, here in Australia, we have, um, if I can just give me uh, some free advertising, uh, Alpha Crucis College that I work for uh, can take you right through to a PhD. And uh, so it's just one example of Pentecostalism becoming more sophisticated, uh, more intelligent, more mm-hmm. balanced, uh, more, um, what's the word, rational, mm-hmm. in, without being rationalistic, uh, and therefore having more to say to our world um, out there. Now, it remains controversial. Um, and obviously, if, if, um, if you ask people in Australia if they know anything about Pentecostals, the three names that would come up uh, would be Brian Houston, Margaret Court, and Scott Morrison. Now, all three of those people are very controversial for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are controversial, and I think it's a good thing because at least it makes people think yes. and, and, um, and, and, you know, go, well, well who are these people? Mm. Um, and I'm going to write a book about that too. But, I am right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think that we do have some baggage though from the past and you yeah, know, we've listed some of those things and look, you know, I, I was involved myself. I'm a Pentecostal pastor. Um, I've got five children and some of my children have been disillusioned by mm. those same, those same uh, propensities to claim too much. Mm. I think, you know, we've got to be so careful. We don't, overblow our claims about healing about prophecy about mm. etc on the other hand let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater so to speak uh and jettison those things that made us strong and vibrant um in the first place and yes. I think that's the balance that pentecostals are, are trying to find today but just for the sake of your audience here um it's important to realize that pentecostalism is growing gangbusters mainly in the majority world yes so in latin america in africa uh in parts of asia uh and in and in parts of the middle east mm. the fastest growing church in the world right now is in iran mm. so i've heard amazing and it's largely pentecostal in its way it may, they may not call themselves that any more than the church in china doesn't call itself pentecostal it's also growing this probably a hundred million Pentecostal type Christians Mm. on right now and Mm. doesn't get a lot of press. It's amazing. And I think that openness to the Holy Spirit is obviously Mm. a huge key to that. And that's obviously what we love about Pentecostalism is at the end of the day, there's a real openness to the Holy Spirit, to the supernatural. We try not to get bogged down uh, unnecessarily in natural things. And that I think allows for incredible faith, incredible mm. moves of God, uh, incredible belief in, in the unseen and the prophetic future and all these things. But I think, yeah, the disillusionment with my generation is a bit more, as you said, around those things maybe being stretched mm. too far, being used inappropriately, um, even abused. I, I would look mm. back at some mm. things and go, I think it was abusive in the sense of, you know, uh, positions, prophecies, these things were used to manipulate and coerce. And I think that's probably, and probably Absolutely. even where we're at now as a society, we're just a little bit more aware of those things yes. as well. And we look into the church and go, yeah, you know, even parenting styles being a bit coercive, using scriptures, scare tactics yeah. to get kids to behave right during their teenage and young adult years, things like that, probably backfired uh, to yep. a degree. Um, but I'm really excited, John. As you said, Pentecostalism's got a lot to offer the world. Um, hopefully it's maturing and, and I would love to be part of the church in that way, the body of Christ in that way to help it grow up a bit. I've been doing all my study with the Trinity College, so with the Anglicans, which, which I've done on purpose because I really wanted a very different angle than what I was used mm. to. And as you said yep. before, with your quote about the Presbyterians, and I, I yeah. find they're far better understanding of the Bible, far deeper, far more rational than my experience with Pentecostal. So I've really enjoyed that. It's helped me a lot. I've got some friends there. 
Yeah, yeah, you would, you would. It's and yeah. it's great. I liked what you said about Pentecostalism maybe becoming a bit more intelligent as well. And I know you mean that totally in the right godly kind of way, but mm. I think there's definitely something in that, that just learning to think a little bit more. I've pushed a lot more with my church the last few years, especially with understanding worldviews. It's helped a lot, pushed a lot more you know, the importance of the head, the importance of understanding that God isn't just a God of the heart in the yeah. Pentecostal sense. It's all heart, all emotion, but he's also, uh, he gave us a brain and we renew yeah. our minds and thinking is important and understanding what experts have said is important. It's not just all about prayer lines at the end of church services. <laughs> and, you know, so <laughs> Very good. maybe we yeah, can look- finish off, John, just tell us, uh, mm. uh, did you want to say something else there? Sorry. Oh, no, I just was basically agreeing with you and just also just pointing out that Pentecostalism is starting to produce some really world-renowned scholars. Right, right. So, um, Amos Young, for example, who's an Assemblies of God um, um, minister in America, who is from a Malaysian background, Malaysian-Chinese background, mm-hmm. family migrated to America when he was a child, mm-hmm. and, and uh, he's now one of the top... Um, theologians um, in the world, uh, Frank Machia, another American, but there are some emerging uh, great scholars uh, here um, in Australia um, mm. as well. Some of you listeners may have heard of Jackie Gray, who mm. works at Cruces College, uh, who's one of the top female uh, mm. Bible scholars, uh, particularly on the Old Testament yes. um, in Australia. So we asked, we are uh, you know, in the in the what's the word in the arena now, we yeah. have older, <laughs> the older colleges and and scholars, and I think it's wonderful um, what God is doing through Pentecostals and Charismatics. Um, yes, Craig Keener, for example, uh, is a guy who I've got to know a little bit. He's 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 one of these annoying people who writes two or three books in the year, and <laughs> you know, I mean, not thin. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, enough of that. No, it's great. Well, I've really appreciated you having you on the podcast, John. Uh, we'll have to have you back. You've got plenty to share. And uh, I think on the church, the book of Revelation, Pentecostalism, uh, it's really, really uh, fascinating. So we really appreciate your time. I'll link your books in the description if anyone uh, wants no to look them up or purchase them. And thank you for your contribution to the church and the kingdom of god especially here in australia it's, it's great to have a man of your your stature so thank you for being with us can i ask add one little thing at the end yeah um, another research project i'm doing at the moment is we're interviewing all the older pentecostal ministers that we can find around australia to tell the story of how and why pentecostalism grew over the last 50 years amazing stories uh that have blow your socks off incredible right. and when are you looking to release that john that... uh hopefully early 2023 i'm still great great we'll doing all the interviews now so now we've got to cull them all down i've got i've got well over a million words wow nobody's going to read that so i've got to get <laughs> down to some manageable state and then hopefully uh early 2023 great okay well thank you very much mate it's no good. worries thank you God bless you. Thanks. I trust you're impacted by that Leadership Lessons podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts about today's podcast. Please comment down below and please review the podcast and share it with a friend. Doing this inspires us and helps others to find the podcast. See you next time.